Awesome. All right. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I, I, those that came in after this point, I'll try to create some space for, to hear where you're from uh, toward the end. What we're going to do spending our time, I'm going to share some ideas, uh, introduce kind of where I come from and why I approach preaching the way I do. And then we're going to have some time for Q&A. And so uh, I'm not just going to be a talking head up here. I really want to hear your questions, how you're processing things, and how this could be most helpful for you. And so can we pray? Father, we thank you so much for the incredible privilege that we have, first and foremost, to be your sons and daughters, that before we're preachers of the word, we're your children. And in the embrace of your love and in your presence, you fill our hearts with your truth, and you empower us by your spirit to proclaim the gospel. And Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room and all the various reasons that they're in a setting like this and what their hearts are yearning for, what they need for their ministry. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would glorify Jesus during this time and you would meet them exactly where they're at. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a, a little bit about me. Um, I came to Christ when I was 14 years old. I had this radical encounter with Jesus on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. And so I grew up in New York. I was born in 1980, and so I lived through the crack epidemic of New York. And so now Brooklyn is a great place that people move into. When I was a kid, people were trying to get out of there as fast as possible. Um, now you see cupcake shops and Vespas and... Uh, and uh, no offense, but I grew up in a, in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, and so now I see white people jogging and no one chasing them. It's, an it's, it's a different neighborhood, you know, entirely. But I came to Jesus at the age of 14, uh, and I had this radical encounter with Jesus. And very early on, I felt this call to ministry, and it was quite redemptive to discover that God had this love for me before I even knew him that I wasn't an accident in this world. And why that meant a lot to me was because uh, I'm a result of an adulterous affair between my mom and my dad. And uh, my sister was born before me, and it caused a great scandal. And at that point, he was like, my, my mother made the conclusion and said, I'm going to raise my daughter by myself. This was a mistake. You and I were done. And at that point, my father said, no, uh, you and I are done when I say we're done. Um, you're not just going get to get to walk away from this as easy as you would like. So he actually would break into her apartment, uh, wait for her at her job shift. Sure enough, I'm conceived, and at this point says, this isn't going to happen again. And so he took my mom to the abortion clinic three times. And each time she went, she lied, that she went through with it. And when he realized she lied, he would beat her to try to force a miscarriage. The third time she went to the abortion clinic, and, and I don't always get emotional, but for whatever, maybe it's lack of sleep. I'm, I don't know. I'm, when I remember, I can't wait to meet this woman. A woman stopped her in the parking lot and told my mother, don't abort this child. God has a plan for this child. She wept uncontrollably, got on a plane that day, flew to Puerto Rico, gave birth to me. Six months later, my dad is dead. I didn't know him, grew up in a single-parent home. My father's side of the family was incredibly broken. Uh, 22 brothers and sisters, because uh, apparently my grandmother didn't own Netflix or TV. You know, she didn't have a hobby. She was just making human beings. Um, two of them are alive today. Um, tragic deaths, overdoses, crazy stuff. And uh, so when I meet Jesus and I discover that he has this plan for me to not only know him, but to make him known, it was an amazing thing. Fast forward to uh, 2012, I find myself, God leading my wife and I to leave the only church we've ever been a part of, the church I came to Christ in, met my wife, church that we were talking about me becoming the lead pastor at, to join a brand new church plant uh, in the heart of Queens, New York, um, that had a vision to plant churches throughout New York City. And, and Man, we prayed, we really sought God, and we felt like he led us into it. And since 2012, we've had the joy of seeing, uh, we've planted eight churches throughout New York City 
And so it's a city I love that I've grown up in to see God's hand do this has been amazing. But here's what I've discovered, because New York is an interesting place right now. There's actually a New York Times article that referred to New York City, a secular newspaper like New York Times, referred to New York City as the Silicon Valley for church planting, in that the uh, Christian denominations, big movements are looking for how are you planting churches and doing ministry in such a secular post-Christian city the size of New York? so that we can try to extrapolate principles and see how that can work in other settings. So I'm around church planters all the time. Any church planters in the room? Uh, Maybe you planted a church or about to. And so church planters are, I love them to death. They're they're a gift to the church because they have apostolic fire. They see possibilities where some of us don't. And they have a gift to take something from zero to one. It didn't exist and now something exists. But this is what's been amazing for me as I get around all these church planters. They can gather a team. They have apostolic vision. They see a community forming where one didn't exist. And yet one of the common things that I would keep hearing is preaching was killing them. It was exhausting, the idea that Sunday comes every seven days. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and then the idea that they, this is what they have to keep doing. Um, so it, it began to be uh, a, a pretty big concern for me as I'm around my church plan of friends, realizing that for some of these guys and women, uh, preaching actually is, is killing them. Um, it's something that, it, so it, it made me aware there's a disconnect. Something in the way we're approaching preaching is off if preaching weekly is killing people. The other thing that really just moved me was there was a study that Exponential, the big church planting uh, organization, they do one of the largest church planting conferences in North America, typically in Orlando, like 4,000 church planters come from all over every year. They did a study that was a a, a punch to the gut. said presently in America, only 4% of churches are reproducing. Only 4%. And that's with our landscape of megachurches, multi-site, because the way they would uh, define reproducing is not just that you're adding more services or adding more locations. They would define reproduction as, is that church poised to exist beyond its present leaders? So we are actually facing a significant crisis. As I talk to leaders of Foursquare Denomination, Evangelical Covenant Church, Vineyard, as boomer pastors are, are retiring in mass, They don't have enough leaders to fill these pulpits. So the very reality that at the end of our ministry, when we pass the baton of the gospel, there may not be someone there to grab it. Because one of the things that I think we need to course correct is that by and large, we have outsourced the training of preachers to seminaries, and local churches have not taken a more proactive role in being the incubating place for the next generation of preachers. So if we don't do something now, it's 4% the rate of reproducing churches now, where are we going to be a generation from now? Uh, And then the other thing that moved me is as I began to talk to many of my older pastor friends, I'm 39 and some of my best friends are in their 60s, 70s. I don't know how that worked out. And so, but those are my best friends. And so as I would talk with them, I would hear the sadness in a lot of these leaders' voices realizing my time of pastoring, I'm like five years past my due date. I should have retired. I don't have the energy, this is this, the, 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 the intensity that this takes on me, but I have no one to pass the baton to. And so all of that has led me to write this book, which I brought a few copies if you're interested in, in buying one later. That would be great. Help me feed my kids. That would be a great thing. And so, <laughs> but what I, why I wrote this book, started this nonprofit, Uh, that's facilitating these trainings since August of last year. I've had the privilege of training close to 600 leaders throughout the country, which makes no sense because as we go around this room, you're saying, I I pastor a small church. Our church isn't big by any stretch. I I mean, Easter Sunday, maybe we have 300, maybe. I don't don't speak at big conferences. so, but this, it makes no sense that God's opened the doors that he has for me, except that he's opened the doors. Uh, I'm, I'm not well known, but God told me to write this book so I could get in the room and train. Don't write it to sell copies, get, write it to get in the room and train. 
and that's what's been happening. So, um, so why we're here is because I have a passion to equip you to put tools in your hand so that you can be a participant in training the next generation of preachers. But I also have a passion for you and I as pastors that the act of preaching should never be something that kills our souls. It actually should be the most life-giving thing. It should go from I have to preach to I get to preach. It should go from uh, I need to say something versus I have something to say. And so what we're going to talk about is some ideas that I think could actually be useful in your context. I've seen this be effective in the training of youth and young adult preachers, pre-seminary, seasoned pastors, church planters. Uh, the principles are biblically grounded, and they're contextual for your setting. You could use them in different ways. I hope they become useful, but more, uh, more than just utility or usefulness, what I'm praying is that this actually is used of God in some way to call us back to the core essentials of apostolic preaching. So here's what we're going to talk about. In my estimation, I think these are some things that are missing in preaching. Number one, awakened hearts. What I mean by that is you and I know the difference between someone who's preaching something that they read somewhere, stole from a sermon, versus something that's been preached that's been transformative in the preacher's life. You know the difference when someone is preaching something that you know they have been with God. This is incubated in them. This has been slow cooking in them. They're not speaking about a theory they heard about. They've met the living Jesus. Uh, the other thing is theological depth. It's actually a, a, a sickening thing to think about that for many people, they can be in churches for decades. And sermon after sermon, they're not being equipped to be able to go into the word themselves. They don't know how to crack open the word. It's a mystery what happens up here. And, and, and we, we don't see sermons and the preaching of the word as an equipping opportunity. That our people with each sermon should become less dependent on us. That they should be more equipped to crack open the word themselves with the intention and hope that they can then teach other people. And so we've developed a, a dependent culture where for many Christians, if you and I are not interpreting the word for them, they don't know how to do it themselves. Um, that's something that I think we need to correct. Christ-centeredness. For many, for many folks, uh, they, we, they can be in church, walk in and out of services, and Jesus is the forgotten man. He's hardly ever the focus. He's not the, he's not the sole consuming center of what we're preaching and what we're pointing people to. We're, we're making people better disciples of our churches, not better disciples of Jesus. And so we, in our sermons, Jesus needs to be the center. Um, and so we're going to talk about that for a little bit. The meta-narrative of Scripture. If you know Scripture has a beginning, middle, end, it is telling a grand story. And for most Christians, our functional Bible and the actual Bible are very different things. For most Christians, their functional Bible begins in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20. So the story of God for them is, begins in the fall and ends in the lake of fire. But the actual story of God begins in creation and ends with a new city coming down from heaven. If your starting point is different than God's starting point, your preaching, your ministry, your outlook is going to be, you're going to be on two different pages than God. And so we need to, these are more than just helpful placeholders in the story of God. Creation, fall, redemption, renewal are powerful truths that our people need to be discipled in. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Clear gospel. The privilege that you and I have anytime we're preaching is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he has done on our behalf, the heavy lifting that he's done, the, the initiating, pursuing love of God. You and I as Christians, we are responding to the gospel. We're, we're repenting and having faith in response to the gospel. But the good news for us is that our, our relationship with God is not sustained by our good works. It's, it's all Jesus. He is the center of it. And in our preaching, if we're not clearly proclaiming the gospel, upholding it, very likely we're preaching moralistic sermons. 
we're training people subtly to live a works-based life. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Notice he didn't say it's a power of God. It's a, it's a tangential plan of God. He says, no, the power of preaching is found in declaring the gospel. And what you and I have, every other religion seeks to teach people what they have to do to get to heaven. Our faith teaches people what God has done to come down to them. And it's a radically different approach to life and to, to uh, spirituality. And we get to proclaim the gospel. And I think we have to be super intentional in our preaching to make sure that what we're proclaiming is what Jesus has done. Uh, confronting idols. It's if in our preaching, if we're not confronting what people value more than anything, essentially their functional God, then what we often are doing is are, we're educating people on top of their present disobedience. And so for many Christians, I think it was Dave Ferguson said, most Christians have three to five years of information beyond their present level of obedience. That's, that's, that's something to swallow. Three to five years of information beyond their present level of obedience. Um, and so with each time we're preaching, if, if our sermons aren't aimed at what people value the most, what their affections are tied to, they can walk in and walk out never touched, never transformed. They've gained more information about Jesus, but their functional God remains the same. It, that's why it's not a mystery why you could be a Christian and still be a racist, still be stingy, uh, still mistreat people, because your idols aren't touched. You learn a lot about Jesus, and you compartmentalize that, but ultimately your life is built on something other than him and him alone. And so our sermons need to confront idols. We'll talk a little bit about that story. What I argue is there is no excuse for an unengaging sermon. So I know that can create stress for some of us, like, oh, wait, what does that mean? I, I, I have to be an entertainer? No. What I'm saying is the subject matter of Scripture is the most riveting intense story ever it's filled with tension and drama and engaging so if our sermons are different than the subject matter that's something that needs to change because if we're honest most people are just politely not telling us that our sermons are horrible i know that's hard to swallow you know it's like it what i came to realize that most a lot of people were just being polite that it was kind of like a hostage negotiation. You know, like they were just, how long is he going to take? When am I going to get home? And, but here's the good news. The story of Scripture is so riveting and powerful. You don't have to become an entertainer to preach engaging sermons if you actually dive into the drama of redemption and let that grip you. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And lastly, application. Uh, Jesus, when he comes to preach the gospel, Mark chapter 1, he's proclaiming the good news everywhere. He's proclaiming the, the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the response that he proposes to people is repent and believe. Whenever the gospel is preached, there's an appropriate response that God calls people. Otherwise, we may be part of our people becoming self-deceived. Because as James 1 says, don't hear the word only. And don't do it, because if that's the case, you become deceived. That scripture really convicted me years ago that if I wasn't clear as to what God was calling people to do based on his word, I might be aiding in the self-deception of my people by telling them what God has said, but never calling them to what they're supposed to do. And the other aspect of application is, one is expectation in the sense, what is God expecting people to do? And the other aspect is divine expectation. You as the preacher, as you're coming to the pulpit, what's your divine expectation as to what God is going to do? Because the difference between a sermon and a religious lecture, I think it comes down to divine expectation. Are you just there to transfer information from your head to theirs? Or are you there believing that the same God who created the universe with his words still creates with his words? That when you preach the gospel, his creative, life-giving spirit is released, and we get to see God do these amazing things. 
So based on kind of these observations, what I've tried to do is simplify the process of preaching, streamline it in a way that I hope what it does, it takes the cookies from the top shelf and puts it at the bottom shelf. Because here's one thing that I discovered. You and I as pastors, you, we expect our leaders to reproduce and multiply at every level of our church, but we don't hold ourselves to the same standard. You and I should be reproducing preachers. Let God send them wherever he sends them. But you and I have a responsibility to re reproduce after our own kind. And so what I hope is that this takes the cookies from the top shelf to the bottom shelf. And now in your church, if you have some humble, broken, teachable, thirsty people that feel this call to preach pre-seminary, give them these tools, give them these processes, and see what God might do. So my approach to preaching is informed by my own journey in that I didn't go to seminary. I don't have formal theological training because all I had to do was see the tuition rate. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. I, it, for me, it didn't make sense for me to get in debt to uh, extreme debt if you want to go to a good seminary um, and then to be in a profession that doesn't pay a lot. That just didn't make sense. And so, but what I did was I got my friends that went to seminary to give me their syllabuses. I bought the books and I read them, but I just didn't want to pay the tuition rate. And so what I hope is that we can be a part of changing the trajectory of this utter and soul dependence on if you're called to preach, we just got to wait for you to go to some type of institution outside of your local church. We can start now, start young, training young people, training specifically as well women, uh, that we don't have enough women leaders, enough women preachers, in large part because the system actually works against them. Um, so what I've done is tried to simplify this process. And so uh, I'm trying to remember, oh, it was Aquinas. So if you're familiar with the writings of Aquinas, and so I have a friend uh, who's one of the nerdiest Puerto Ricans I know. I'm Puerto Rican, and so, but he's like super nerdy. He knows German, knows Latin, and he thought I was an equal nerd. And so he says, Says when, so he's a heck of a preacher. His name is Rich Velotis. He's actually the, the guy that took over for Pete Scazzaro, um, the emotionally healthy leadership guy. And um, so it, he endorsed my book, and he loved it. And he was like, hey, you got this from uh, Aquinas, right? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, in Latin, Aquinas describes his preaching process as you seeing the text, you see something, and you slowly turn, and you say, look, look what I saw. I was like, first off, Rich, thank you for thinking I know Latin. That's really cool. Um, but no, I, I didn't get it from Aquinas. But for me, why, if you see, we spend more time in beholding than we actually spend time in proclaiming because I think the foundational base unit of a sermon is you and I translating an encounter we've had with the living Jesus and then translating that for the sake of the people he's called us to preach to. So I think we should stare more than we actually spend time thinking of what we're going to say. Now, do you have to do some work here? Absolutely. But the foundation of it is you and I staring until we are first transformed. So back to one of the reasons why I wrote this book is, again, I think one of the disconnects in preaching is that if you read most sermon books, they actually kind of tell you to go to the text to get a sermon rather than going to the text to first and foremost meet the living God. We don't go to Scripture to get a sermon. We don't go to Scripture to get an idea that we're going to talk about God. We, if you do that, then what happens over time, you and I begin to reduce God to a subject rather than talking about the being who's captured our souls. You know when you're in the presence of people that are in love because the way it, it emanates from their hearts. And there was this famous atheist that he was going to go hear Charles Spurgeon preach, and his friends were like, why are you going to go hear this guy? You, you, you don't believe in God at all. And his response was, but he does. He wanted to be in the presence of someone who firmly believed what he was preaching because that's powerful to see that emanate from someone's life. Uh, I think it was Dallas Willard, he talked about the power of a satisfied soul in God. That when you're preaching from a place of deep satisfaction, 
that emanates. Even what, when you're not saying, when you're not preaching, it emanates from your soul. And so when I train preachers, I start them in reading the text devotionally. You're going to the text not to try to master it, not to try to understand it through a theological lens. Your first attempt to go to the text is to read it in its simplest form, which is fundamentally scripture is a love letter. And it's God's love letter to us. And when we go to the text to read it devotionally, we're just letting God awaken our heart to him. Just to, we're, we're going to the scriptures to meet him as his child, not as a preacher. So we let our hearts get awakened, but then after we let our hearts get awakened, then now we go to the scripture and read it exegetically. Now we're letting our minds catch up with our awakened hearts. Now we're doing the study. We're finding out what did this mean to the original audience, the context, the grammar. We're doing all the theological work, but we're not doing it for a sermon. We're doing it for our own transformation. Because what happens in exegesis, assumptions we had about God get cleared up get corrected. False ideas. Something I tell my church constantly, if God is only and always signing off on your life decisions and he never pushes back, then you're serving a God you created in your mind, not the real God. In exegesis, we find out who God really is and that transforms us. Now we're looking to the text, the next step, Christ-centered. We're saying, how is Jesus revealed in this text? But if it's an Old Testament passage, we're asking, how is this text understood in light of Jesus? Because Christ is the interpretive key of all of Scripture. He is the sum total, the essence. He is what everything is pointing to. He's the concretization of every Old Testament abstraction. Jesus is the thread that runs through all of it. So we're looking to meet Jesus in the text explicitly. But then when we go to the text, uh, Zach Eswine in his book, Preaching to a Post-Everything World, talks about in the text, you can often find echoes of creation, echoes of the fall, echoes of redemption, echoes of renewal. And when you're looking at a text, it's amazing when you begin to look for that thread that you'll see these elements of God's bigger story. And what we're doing is now we're connecting the context of that passage to the greater context of Scripture. And we're doing that transform, experiencing greater transformation. The goal is if we spend more time beholding staring by the time you get up to preach there'll be more in you than ever gets out of you one of the reasons why pastors are fading and draining and and they're being burnt out because we're giving what we don't have and a lot of reasons why we're giving what we don't have because we spend way little way far less time beholding just being with jesus we're we're not ministering out of an overflow of intimacy and so it slowly but surely pushes us toward performance. But then from there, we go and we look for the evangelion. That's the Greek word for gospel. Saying, what is good news in this text? What do I see that God has done? You know, uh, Tim Keller says, we preach good news, not good advice. That's what the gospel is. It's a telling of what God has done. We're not just making suggestions to people. Maybe you should try this. That's moralism. We're preaching. This is what God has done. And based on that, this is what you and I get to respond to. After we've been beholding God and letting this cook in us, now we do the work of translating this encounter that we've had into what we would call a sermon. And now we begin to think of how do I proclaim this? How do I preach this? And the first thing that it's the, it's the key for all public speaking, let alone biblical preaching, is knowing your audience. And the question that I try to get preachers to think of is, whoever you're called to preach, what are the idols in their hearts that are going to resist this gospel you're about to preach? And what I think is unique, or helpful rather, about preaching and confronting idols is that it actually allows us to preach to both Christian and non-Christian in an, in an uncontrived way. Because here's the reality. Both Christian and non-Christian, the commonality they have is we are all professional idolaters. From the moment we were born, what we have been instinctively doing is pushing God out of the center of our life and letting good things become ultimate things. And so when we, when we focus on that and actually begin to ask the people I'm called to preach to, the audience, the community, the broader culture, what are the things that they value and the question I ask is, what are people's hopes and dreams, and how are they trying to fulfill them apart from Jesus? 
when I actually be able to answer that question, I can identify what they value more than anything. What's their functional Jesus? So as I'm preparing to preach, I'm, the gospel I'm about to preach and I'm translating into a sermon, it has to confront those idols because otherwise I'm just going to educate people into their own disobedience. Add more Christian information on top of where they're presently pushing God out of the center. After we've done that work, then we talk about story. Now we're putting pen to paper and structuring our sermon. Uh, I won't have time to really get into that, but again, to just to echo the idea of in our structure of our sermons, there's no excuse for an unengaging sermon because the subject matter of our sermon is the most riveting thing ever. And so when you're structuring your sermon, one of the things I like to teach preachers, when they, especially when they're starting young, there's a difference between a sermon that has stories versus a sermon that feels like a story. And, you, and when something feels like a story, you can sit there for a long time. Uh, think, think of the recent Avengers movie. Uh, people sat there for over three hours because the story riveted them. And so uh, in my opinion, I think many people preach beyond their level of capacity to actually keep an audience engaged. Um, and so if you're preaching a long time, get some folks that love you to give you some honest feedback and see if it's justified for you to preach 50 minutes, 45 minutes, because chances are you'd probably be more effective under 30. And if you're a Pentecostal charismatic, uh, as I am, it gives you more time to pray and prophesy and do some fun stuff <laughs> and get people home before the sun goes down. And so, uh, but again, engaging sermons. And last but not least, we talked about expectation. It's this dual idea of what's your divine expectation as you're getting up to preach and what does God expect people to do? This, it, I've given you the fastest, most fire hydrant uh, sipping way of uh, uh, processing this content, which uh, I do a one-day seminar, eight hours, where I teach and actually bring people through practicums on each of these steps. So I'm not doing it justice, but what I hope in some way that this motivates you to do a few things. One, own your preaching development. No one can own that for you. you. You have to be motivated to grow as a preacher. If you are content with where you're at as preaching, no book, no seminar, nothing's going to help you. But I think Jesus deserves our very best. There, God forbid we ever phone this in. So that's number one. Number two, there are people in your church right now that if you train... If they're humble, they're teachable, you sense a call to preach, you give them these tools, you may be setting them up for a lifetime of effective ministry. Uh, I've seen it with young people, teenagers, early college. Some of the young people that we've been able to train, quite frankly, they're preaching better than some of my seminary friends that went and paid a lot of money. Uh, and they're preaching in an orthodox, biblical way. It's not aberrant. It's actually, like, truly centered. And they're preaching from a place of transformation. And so I, I could say more, but I would definitely want to create some space for Q&A. Um, we're set to go to 1230, and so we have some time to kind of process stuff. And so before I begin to ask questions, how many know the difference between a question and a statement? <laughs> right? This, we're in a room full of preachers. We're used to making statements. I would love to hear questions and so, so that we can engage. And so, yes, you raise your hand first. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that we try to do in our seminars is teach them to go from a, uh, a hermeneutical outline to a homiletical outline. And so um, now you've, uh, so we talk about going back and forth on a bridge. And so basically you go from the hermeneutical outline where you've interpreted the text. Because uh, this process, what it does is basically you're, you're doing exegesis on the text and then eventually you're doing exegesis on your audience. 
but then back and forth, if you can imagine a bridge, if your audience is on one side and your text that you've done exegesis on the other side, you're going back and forth, kind of processing that prayerfully, and in between that journey emerges your homiletical idea. Like, what's the God thought that's centering this process? And from there, beginning to formulate your intro, your middle, your conclusion, and stuff. And so uh, I think if you identify the homiletical idea, the main big idea, the concept, um, then it's easier to structure and kind of create, like, if this is where we're heading, then this is what we have to do to get there in the sermon versus a lot of times we plan where we're going, but we actually haven't been really clear on where we're ending up. And so I think it was Haddon Robinson he would talk about in his book, Biblical Preaching, that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And so the clearer we are as to where we're going, the better chances our people have of arriving there. And so one exercise that's it's, it's tough to do he would advocate for you to summarize your sermon in a succinct sentence before you preach it. And if you can't do that, keep working. Keep staring. Keep doing what you're doing. So, yeah, that, that's, that would be my short. Yeah. When you're you know, do they know what an outline is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll give them examples. Uh, from deductive outlines to inductive um, to bullet point manuscript, you know, and so we'll, we'll go through all of that. And so that's definitely helpful to kind of give people some samples. I share them, share my outlines with them and show them, hey, this is where I ended up, how, et cetera. And so, yeah. You had your hand up? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I'm all about trying to find inexpensive hacks to train preachers because um, I think if this can't work in the third world in poor contexts, then actually, is it really working in our context? Um, so for me, it's a justice issue where I think there's, uh, so I'm constantly trying to find, you know, cheap ways of doing it. And so, one of the more cost-effective resources has been Gordon Fee's works, um, reading the Bible book by book and reading the Bible for all it's worth. For the cost that you pay for that resource, you get so much content. So he does a lot of great exegetical work, the, the date when it was written, who it was written to, the purpose of the book, um, what were the unique tensions that were happening there. Um, Another thing is, uh, I don't know what your library systems are in your particular cities, but in New York, our library system is actually quite amazing in that any book in, in publication, I can, get, I can order it and they can deliver it to my local library. And so what I do is I actually ask um, preachers to go to a website called bestcommentaries.com. If you're, if you're not familiar with that website, become familiar with it because what they do is they take every book of the Bible and they rate the best commentaries based on uh, different ratings that those commentaries have had, usage, purchases. So they have a certain algorithm that determines um, the different commentaries. And they have different commentaries, uh, different categories of commentaries. So they have ones that are devotional, ones that are more pastoral, and some that are very technical. Um, and so if you're going to preach a text, uh, find the commentary that work that really has done some good work on that. Um, Bible Hub is a great free resource. Um, but then the other thing is if you're training somebody that you feel a lifelong call on them potentially to preach, um, get them to start young to build a theological library. And so uh, Lagos is one of the best softwares out there. Um, for in nanoseconds, you get access to tens of thousands of dollars of resources just typing in a word and stuff. And so, um, yeah, those are some good places to start. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's this really great TED Talk by one of the founders of Pixar. Um, trying to remember the title of it. But if you go to TED.com TED uh, and, and just type in Pixar, 
it's probably one of the highest rating uh, rated uh, videos. And now it's an interesting fact that actually when he was alive, Steve Jobs made more money from Pixar than he actually did from Apple. He made more money in the telling of stories. Um, and so the creators of Pixar, which if, if you have small kids, I have 10-year-old daughter, 7-year-old son, 4-year-old son. I've been living in Toy Story and all this other stuff. And, and a lot of times we watch the movie that I want to watch, you know. And so like, hey, can we watch Toy Story again? You know, it, it's an incredibly well-told story. And so Pixar would be a great place to start. Um, there's another book called Talk Like Ted. Uh, that was really helpful. Um, trying to uh, so the title isn't coming to me, but what this other great resource is called the Homiletical Plot. It's by Eugene Lowry, and the the subtitle is the um, the sermon is narrative art form, and one of the things he argues is that. If most movies were structured like most sermons, people would walk out of the theater in the first couple minutes. Because most of the times, one of the things that we do in sermons that actually hurt us is that we give away one of the greatest assets we have, which is leveraging tension, narrative tension. Um, and so as you're preparing sermons, think of you know where you're supposed to get to. Begin to think of what's the tension that I can create and keep creating to get them to be on the edge of their seat till I bring them to where God is bringing them in, their, in his word. And, uh, yeah, so one of the things I try to do, I try to find clean comedians that I can watch over and over again um, or even find profane comedians and just try to bleep out as much as I can. Um, because one of the things that's crazy is if you look at comedians, they're able to engage an audience for 50 minutes, an hour. Um, but one of the things that I think we don't glean enough from other forms of public speaking and communication is that, like, let's take, for example, even like celebrity pastors and some of their well-known sermons. We're hearing that sermon after they've probably preached it 50 times in various conferences. And now that video that's being shared everywhere is the best version of it. And so... A lot of times we just preach raw, no rehearsal, no practicing, no actually refining. And what even comedians do, they go to smaller clubs, work their material, see what works, see what actually keeps people engaged. And so prior to you preaching, the more lead time you could give to actually test it out, share it with people, tell the story you're about to tell, and see, like, were people engaged? You know, did, did, were they actually listening? Um, so, yeah, th these are some things that I think would be helpful. Find engaging storytellers and begin to extrapolate. How do they do that? Whether it's comedians, other preachers, or if you're in family outings, look at, look at the family member that actually captures everybody's attention when they're telling a story and say, how'd you do that? You know, kind of unpack that. But honestly, it's as simple as pray to God and ask him to make you an effective storyteller. We serve Jesus, the greatest storyteller ever. And, and ask him, make me like you. Help me to tell stories about you that actually usher people into your presence. And so those would be some starting points. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm reading the text devotionally, I'm not trying to read it from a theological lens. I'm not trying to master my understanding of the text. I just want to meet God as his child. And so one of the practices that I engage in, it's in, uh, an ancient practice called Lectio Divina. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's basically, don't let the Latin phrase spook you out because here's the newsflash. If you've been reading scripture prayerfully, you've actually been doing Lectio Divina. You just didn't know that there was a Latin phrase for it. Um, so Lectio Divina is it's divine reading, and it's a prayerful reading of scripture that's slow, intentionally kind of just keep coming back to it and meeting God in the scripture. And so when I, when I first read the text, I'm just looking, seeing what's, what's causing my heart to come alive. 
as I'm reading the text. It's like, what, what do I see here? So I'm getting ready to preach. We're doing a series starting this Sunday on the Lord's Prayer. And so first phrase, the, the, the question the disciples asked, teach us to pray. I've been stuck on that phrase, teach us to pray. Like, you can teach me to talk to you. And then, like, struck with, man, this is so humbling. I actually need you to teach me how to talk to you. Uh, that, that's how broken my soul is. But that's the good news. You could actually teach me. Uh, you, you want me to know how to meet you, you know. And so just spending time there, just being immersed in gratitude, like, I can actually talk to you. And you invite me to be with you. So it just been spending time there. But then now as I go and begin to move beyond that, then the exegesis, then the process. And so a lot of times I'll just prayerfully, slowly read the text and just write words that kind of leap out from it. I don't understand them. I haven't taken the time to say, what does this mean? Context, historically, grammar. Just, man, that word teach or teach us. That's interesting. Uh, or the Lord, teach us. Lord. It's not just philosopher Jesus telling me, how to talk to God. It's Lord Jesus. And so that, that's kind of just a prayerful process um, that begins this. And at that moment, why I start there, because again, as I progress forward, my first contact with the scripture was just to meet God. So by the time I preach, I'm pushing against the tendency to reduce God to a subject. I've met him as his child, and that's informing the rest of the journey toward preaching. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yes and yes. Uh, so, before I ever subject a congregation, an audience to a preacher, I subject myself to them. And so um, they preach in front of me and our preaching team, and that's where we work that stuff out. I'm not going to put somebody in a setting that they're supposed to provide spiritual care through the word to people if I don't think they're going to be effective. Um, and so we create preaching labs within our team and within our church for prospective leaders that we're trying to train. And after we guide them in this content and explain this process, that's where we incubate them. And so as they're preaching in front of us, then that's when we can determine, like, okay, where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? Do they have capacity to preach beyond just this lab environment? And in that space, that's when we can determine this person has a Sunday gathering kind of gift. This person maybe, man, they're probably better in a classroom setting where it's dialogical and, and they, they, they're not built to carry a sermon in that way. Or this person, man, they could be really effective with this age bracket, this season of life, etc. And so it's, it's exploratory in the laboratory phase. But after they go through that laboratory phase, if we see that, man, they, are, they, they have the capacity to c keep growing, then we invite them into a longer journey. But that's where we start. Yeah, and so it's basically, essentially we, we teach them these principles and then in the lab, the first stroke of it, we actually give them permission to find the text, to find the text themselves. I'm not assigning it because I actually, by the time they get critique, I don't want them to hear, oh, but you assigned this text, you know. And so if I had the opportunity to find my own text, I might have preached better. No, because by the time they get feedback from us, they're going to get in love but brutally honest feedback. Um, and so we, we set the context and let them know that if you're not ready to get, you know, brutally honest feedback, then maybe preaching isn't for you. Because um, I, I try to model that. I still allow, I still get feedback every week. In between services, I go to our preaching team and say, hey, wh what was clear? What was it? What could I do better? Um, and so if I'm subjecting myself to that process, then you're not going to be able to preach if you don't if you're not prepared to do that, and so even in the lab environment. So after they select the text, we guide them through this. Um, then we give them a, a specific amount of time uh, for them to preach. Uh, first, first stroke of it is like 10 minutes. Can you preach a 10-minute sermon that's engaging, that's clear, that has a clear biblical idea, 
um, and can you actually teach it? Um, and, and you would think, oh, that's not enough time to judge someone fully, and it isn't, but it actually is enough time to see can they actually get to an idea. Um, it, Ten minutes is actually a very long time. Um, if you think about it, it's, most TV shows are 22 minutes. Within 10 minutes, if they haven't got you somewhere, you're probably turning it off. And so from 10 minutes, then we increase it to 20, and typically we try to not exceed like 35 minutes. So it's a few iterations, but we can talk more specifically afterwards because actually, or one place that you could visit would be this website, thecharygmagroup.com. Um, you can contact me there. Um, there's resources that we've created, again, one-day seminars, preaching, coaching, uh, you know, individual uh, coaching programs and stuff. But that's a great place for us to continue that conversation because there's a lot of things that we can process. So any way I can be helpful. Any other questions, feedback, thoughts? Yes. Right, thinking, right. I don't know if that person is ready to receive that level of leading that group of understanding. Yeah. And then, like, how do you create that culture? Yeah. Start there, especially if you're not that head. You know, if I was a head pastor, I could say, well, this is what we're doing, so I won't understand what this person under that, and how can you encourage that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a few ways to answer that. I mean, I, I'm the lead pastor of my church, and so uh, the culture of my church, whether I like it or don't, I'm responsible for its creation. And so I want to try to intentionally create a culture that I think will be healthy. And so because I'm modeling this, it's easier to actually bring people to that same accountability. And so if I'm asking you who knows less of the Bible than me or, or has been in ministry less, but I'm still taking your feedback into consideration and I'm asking for it, then hopefully that takes away the excuses, the defensiveness. But I think also, too, like, um, if we're that fragile to actually receive feedback, if it's strong, then, man, I maybe we need to know that early on because I don't want to set you up for a lifetime of ministry because it's going to kill you. You know, like, it's people are brutal, you know, and, and they mean well, but sometimes church is hostile sometimes, and so... Yeah, so it, that actually is an important thing. If it, there's been folks that had great preaching gifts, but when it came time to correction, they would crumble. They, they couldn't receive it. They would get defensive. We try to disciple them into that. And if they couldn't turn the curve and actually have a humble posture, then, man, this probably isn't for you because it, the worst thing could be is you actually become effective in that subtle pride that you carry you're a disaster waiting to happen. And so, yeah. Sure, let me just make sure uh, anybody that hasn't asked a question um, gets an opportunity. We have a few minutes left. Any other questions from someone who hasn't asked? Otherwise, I'll just go back to you. All right. Yeah, I mean, it, I think if, if you're ending your sermon and people are wanting more, that's a good thing. Um, but if they're wanting more because you actually didn't complete your thought, that's not a good thing. But if they actually say, man, I want more of what you just did, then that's a good time frame to determine. Um, but I think it also flows within, like, the whole structure of your gathering, and so... For us, I preach a specific amount of time because we value prayer and worship after we preach so we can engage in prophetic ministry and praying for the sick, etc. And so because I want to make sure every time we gather we have that time available, I preach within a certain parameter. Um, and so so that, that also factors in, like, how – because they're, they're, for us, we approach worship as 
that's the first kind of curation of sermon. And so as they're singing, we're intentional as to the song structure. And because and I think it was Tozer that said, most Christians get their theology from their worship songs, which is actually kind of scary. Um, because if you look at a lot of worship songs, if you just replace the name Jesus with Susie, you would never know actually this was specifically written to Jesus. It's just there. It's just all romanticized emotion. There's n very little theology. It doesn't really point to the gospel. Um, doesn't prepare people for suffering. A lot of worship songs. It's all victory, no mourning. Um, like there's a book called Lamentations for a reason. Um, and so. Yeah, so we want to structure everything to make sure that people are being discipled and formed intentionally. Um, so, yeah, my preaching time is kind of all within that parameter. All right. Um, any other questions, thoughts? Uh, yes. Oh, oh, wait. Yes. Right. Oh yeah, we so we have worship before we get up to preach. We'll have worship for you know thirty, thirty-five minutes, forty, and then um, an announcements. Where we save time, we don't do long announcements, and we don't uh, do long offering sermons. So we actually spend such little time there that we're able to recoup it for preaching. So after we do worship. Then I'll preach, and then we'll have time at the end to worship more and pray and stuff. And so, and we've been seeing such amazing things happen with prophetic ministry in our church. So one of the things we've been doing is our prayer team, they get there uh, early Sunday morning, and as they pray, they send prophetic words to myself and our executive pastor, and then we judge, and then we'll share them right after worship. Um, and then we'll say, if that word applied to you at the end of the service, we'd love to pray with you. Um, and so recently... Uh, Really, really fun story. So there's a guy in our church that he manages two CrossFit gyms. And it was an answer to prayer because my brother had been praying that God would help me address my, my physical health. And so I've actually been training with him for two years. I've lost over 50 pounds. Um, it's been amazing. And so you should thank God I would have been 50 pounds heavier, you know. Uh, that's a big guy. And so, um, so in relationship with him, the owner of the gym secular former uh, lawyer who owns these gyms, super liberal. Anyway, she starts visiting the church. And uh, I was thrilled. I was like, man, this lady doesn't believe in Jesus. She's coming to the church. And then one Sunday morning, he and I are working out before church because we meet up like seven-ish to work out uh, Sunday mornings. And he tells me, hey, uh, the owner's coming today. And my heart sunk because I knew what I was about to preach. I was like, this is going to be a bad Sunday. She should not come the conversation's going to end because I was going to talk about human sexuality and where we land. And I knew that where we land, she was not going to be in agreement with because, again, she's liberal, she's progressive. Anyway, I was so, in, like, kind of focused and semi-nervous about what I was going to preach on because I knew it was going to offend some folks and maybe be difficult for other people to process, uh, regardless of how loving I was going to try to communicate it, that I didn't actually pay attention to the prophetic word that was shared. Uh, and so that Sunday they shared a word. It was very specific. There's a woman here who your dad's health is failing, and you're at the edge of your rope, and God wants to meet you here. I didn't put it. That was her. And so during the greeting time, she comes up to me and says, did you tell them? I'm like, oh, tell them what? What are you talking about? Because I'm trying to greet new people. She's like, did you tell them about my dad? I'm like, Oh, my gosh, no. And, and then so I pulled the gym, the guy that trains me. I was like, ask him. I was training with him. I didn't even know you were coming here. This lady's face goes pale. She goes and gets prayer for the first time ever. And God is continuously bringing her. She was away tending to her dad. She just came back. And you, I, I was like, what has happened? She's like, oh, Pastor Chris, God is doing some amazing things in my life. I'm like, oh, my God. And so, I, I mean, story after story, healings, crazy stuff. Uh, that's been happening, but it's because we try to create that intentionality, and so, um, yeah, that's how we structure our sermons. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? Uh, yes? I mean, it's just a matter of whether it's such a complicated sermon, you 
Yeah. Absolutely. You, you should do this experiment. Sit with leaders that communicate up front, like whether announcements or something. Just sit with them and put a clock and let it run for two minutes in silence and see how long that feels. And yet, think about how much time, uh, and it's a pet peeve, and I'm not trying to hide it. Uh, it's a pet peeve of my how much time we waste with announcements that if our congregation can read, just like, <laughs> why are we doing that? You know, like, point them to the website, to the bulletin, you know, like, use that precious time to preach, to pray, to be in the presence of God. And so, yeah, I think we should, anything that we could do to be as streamlined and as direct and, and really economize our time would be in everybody's best interest. Yeah. I'll be praying for you. Yeah. Any uh any other thoughts before we close? Yeah. Why do you stop from going from developing your business from exposition of the religion of the church rather than from the Bible what you say? Uh if I if I'm understanding your question correctly, um I think, yeah, extra-biblical sources are helpful if they're bringing validity to what the Bible has already established. Um, but for me, the starting point is always Scripture. Um, it's, it, yeah, we, if, if that needs to, we need to be on that same page. Otherwise, where I'm going to take you and where we're going to go in the sermon, it's, it's not really going to be transformative, you know, because we're on two different wavelengths. But... In my sermons, I try to, you know, find statistics, studies, anecdotes that are coming from various sources, hopefully to highlight the point that maybe you don't see divine inspiration in Scripture, but do you notice that these other things seem to be saying the thing that Scripture's been saying all along? You know, and so, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't promise you that it'll work for you. Uh, but this process has actually empowered me to preach, prepare to preach in under 10 hours. Um, and I'm preaching from the fullest place I've ever preached. And much to my surprise, like, which is kind of, it's encouraging, but semi-insulting. Some of our folks are like, I've never heard you preach like this before. I'm like, what are you talking about, man? You know, I've, been, I've been doing this for a long time. But it's, this process has really focused me in a way because for me, I, I, if you're preparing 20, 30 hours to preach a sermon, you're basically hiding from your church behind your Bible. And when are you going to have time to lead it? Uh, as well, as forget, be present to your family. And so because of those values, um, yeah, I was trying to you know, hack around that. Because then ultimately, too, I think when you commit to a disciplined amount of time and you just say, within this time frame, I'm going to preach the sermon that God gives me um, and be disciplined to that and trust him with the results, um, I think that's a transformative experience because it reminds you, like, at the end of the day, it's not my sermon or my words that carry this. It's, it's you know, the God that I've sought and stuff. So you have a question in the back, yes? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, this, is, this has been a game changer for me. I, I wrote the book in August, but these concepts kind of crystallized for me in the beginning of the early part of 2017. And so I've been training lay preachers for a long time, but the way this kind of synchronized was like, oh my gosh, this actually could work. And, um, and so um, as a result of this process, I'm, I'm able to prepare sermons many months out. Um, so I've, I've charted out a lot of 2020 already, but now I charted out very loosely in, in the sense that it, it, a lot of that can change. So I have, 
I have a ton of sermon series that are just waiting in the docket. And I'm just trying to discern the right time. Because for me, I think it's more important for the pantry of my soul to be full, always. And then I can, whatever the ingredients that are needed, you know, for a specific sermon, it's already there. And so, but because this actually has reduced my sermon prep time for individual sermons, I have more space to dream and think and pray and to cultivate sermon series with our team. And so we're at a stage in our church where I'm not the only one cooking up sermon series. Our preaching team is doing so. And so now we have a lot of different options to be able to plug that in. Um, and how we plug it in is basically we try to discern the season of our church, uh, even the Christian calendar, kind of where we're at within the year, different felt needs that we're discerning in pastoring our church. And that's how we kind of structure our preaching calendar and stuff. So myself, apart from our team, I'm easily like six months out. Um, in terms of sermon prep and stuff like that. Yeah. I like what you said there because we can get so busy writing these wonderful messages that by the time we get around to it, we've got this big docket that nothing's relevant yeah. at that time. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we can't do it on the spur of the moment, but right. we can be so far out there that you just, you might get a sudden faint. Right. And it's not relevant to the message. Yeah. It's 1230. I want to be respectful of your time. I saw your hand up. Let me pray for us, and then if you want to hang around and ask a few more questions, i am be more than happy to. And so thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having a passion to preach and to train preachers. We all need to say yes to this call to train preachers intentionally so that we can tip the scales and regain some ground we've lost. And so, Father, thank you so much. That first and foremost, we're your sons and daughters before we're preachers, before we're pastors. That's the greatest name that we will ever carry. And Lord, I pray for these men and women in this room. Would they preach from a fuller place than they've ever preached before? Would they preach from a place of deep transformation? And would you empower them to train and equip the next generation of preachers with greater intentionality? Lord, you said that we would pray to the Lord of the harvest, that you would send forth laborers. And Lord, we want to not only pray that prayer, but be part of answering that prayer together with you. So Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.